0: So this week we're going to talk about temptation. And I don't know about you, but there are some things that tempt me more than others. And I brought one with me this morning. So you can be thinking about this as I preach today. But I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Is anybody with me? If if you... (laughs) If you don't like Reese's Beanut Butter Cups, I don't have anything for you. I don't know what to say. But there's just something about it. And, you know, if you're like me and you love the show Food That Built America, I can tell you all about how these came about. <laughs> if you went to Ecuador this year, you know I can tell you how these came about. Uh, but I love Reese 's cups, and all I have to do is is see one, and I have to exercise willpower not to buy one in the checkout. I actually bought two yesterday so but it it, it does bring to point or bring bring to the forefront something uh, that is important. You know temptation begins with a thought it begins with the thought entering your mind. And if you don't capture that thought, then you'll end up being thinking about it more and more and more and being tempted more and more and more. Last week, we talked about trials. And many of those trials are tests sent to us by God to test our faith. This week, we're going to talk about temptations. Trials can be sent by God as tests to our faith. Temptations are sent by Satan to... Attempt to give us what appears to be an easy way out of whatever we're dealing with or something to make us feel better in the moment. And we'll see how that works this morning and what we need to do to avoid uh, temptations. Trials are going to come, whether you bring them on yourself or not. Temptations are going to be there. It's how we handle those how we respond to temptation that determines whether or not we enter into sin as a result of the temptations. Because even Jesus was tempted, yet he was tempted without sinning. So we can't avoid temptation, but we can respond in a way to temptation that's not sinful. We're in a series called Taking It to the Streets on the book of James. James is the gospel with shoes on. It is living out our faith. It is the works that show the faith, the salvation that we've received. And so we're going to explore this book together. The basis of our series is this faith that is real works practically in a person's life. True faith is faith that works, it has feet, it is seen in our actions, in our lives. Jay Allen Peterson wrote a book called The Myth of the Greener Grass. You've heard the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, right? He wrote a book about this, and it discusses the process by which men, by which we are lured into deception. Deception is subtle, but deception is very real. The idea is that whatever I'm being tempted has to be better than whatever I'm experiencing in the moment. That's why it's luring. That's why it's tempting, because it appears to be better than what I'm experiencing in the present. Even if it's wrong, it sure does look good. And it seems like it would be enjoyable, and it would be enjoyable temporarily. That's why we want to do it, whatever it is. This is what we call the grass is greener, syndrome. That's, the book is, is all about this. And I've said this before, you may recall, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence until you get over there and realize that's where the cows do their business. And that's the truth. The grass is greener until you get there and realize ah, I wasn't quite as green as I thought it was going to be. It may have been enjoyable for a moment, but inevitably that, it, that joy leads to sorrow if it's sinful activity. So James gives us some practical advice on how to deal with temptation. Now, uh, our memory verse challenge. Do I have a brave volunteer that would like to try to quote verses 13 through 18? I'll I'll be here to help you if you're... All right, David. Oh, we had a couple. Uh, You'll yield? Okay. Kirk, was that you? Kirk's like, no, no, really, you can... Come on up here. I want you to use the microphone. <laughs> See, you didn't, know, you didn't know what you were getting into, but here you go. All right. All right. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil, evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But we are each tempted when by our own evil desire we are dragged away and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming from, down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth so that we might be a first fruit of all he created. Good job. And, <laughs> there you go, man. Reese cups are not sinful, okay? Maybe a few, too many Reese cups are sinful, but there's your prize, all right? Uh, thank you so much for putting yourself out there. Hopefully... While you were checking to see if Kirk got that right, you were digging in, all right? Because that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to walk through this book, uh, verse by verse, and really dig in to what James has to say to us. Now, why do you think James connects? Last week we talked about testing trials. Why do you think James connects testings with temptations? Well, I believe the reason is because if we're not careful, testings on the outside can turn into temptations on the inside because when life gets difficult, when life gets tough, if we aren't enduring, if we're not getting into the Word of God, if we're not walking in fellowship with God, if we're not relying on His presence and strength, if we're not careful, when life gets difficult, we'll begin to look for a way out. We'll we'll begin to look for an easy way out to to make everything we're going through feel better. And that's exactly why I believe James follows up, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops endurance. I, I believe that's why he follows that passage with this passage on temptation. Because while God may bring testing into your life, he will not tempt you. God does not tempt. He's not tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. So don't make that mistake. Don't look for the easy way out. Satan will provide us with an opportunity of what appears to be an escape. And we have a choice. Will we take that, or will we not? The truth is that we're all tempted at one time or another. All of us are going to be tempted by something. God doesn't want us to yield to temptation, though. It is just as testings are, are strengthening as we endure temptations as we resist, they too will strengthen our faith. They will strengthen our character, our Christ-like character. He's not; He doesn't want us to yield to temptation, but God's not going to remove us from temptation. I mean, we are God's called individuals. We are not... Sheltered people, we are scattered. you know James is addressing these believers that are scattered, and believers are scattered all over the world, but we are not sheltered from the world we 're in the world, but we 're to not to be of the world, and so we are going to face temptations and testings they are going to come and and, and listen, if we are going to mature in our faith, we have to face these we 're going to grow in ways through resisting temptation through 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 enduring trials, will grow in ways that we cannot grow any other way. So we need to understand how to deal with temptation in a way that will produce growth, not sorrow, and not sin. So, when the grass is greener, what do we need to do? When we see, when we, we see ourselves entering that grass is greener syndrome, we're, we're hurting, we're feeling uh, difficulties pressing on us, and the grass sure does look greener on the other side of the fence. How do we respond? Well, one thing we tend to do is we tend to pass the buck when the grass is greener. We tend to look for somebody to blame for our situation, for the temptation that we're facing. We need to be aware of that because it's human tendency. We try to blame others for our problems. Will Rogers once said that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. We, We like to pass the buck. We like to blame. Somebody else said, to err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. We, not only do we pass the buck, we, we like to blame God for our, our sin, our problems. I mean, if he's God, he's in control, he could stop me from doing this. He could take this away from me, right? And that's nothing new. People have been doing that for centuries. When things go wrong, we look for somebody to blame. In the first century, uh, in that culture, you would find some unusual reasons for sinful behavior. Some claim that the devil was at fault that it was all his fault and yes he introduced uh, evil into the world he tempted eve but she made a choice to sin adam made a choice to sin as well but some people would have said it's all the devil's fault and the way to get through it is just sheer grit and determination you know just just press through by your strength There's a problem with that. Another version, or perversion rather, said that Satan transferred, and this is just crazy, but Satan transferred the capacity to lust to Eve because of his desire for Eve. Just a crazy way to try to blame somebody other than ourselves. Another school claimed that fallen angels had corrupted man. Jewish rabbis said that it was God's fault that he created evil in man and that man is just a victim of God's plan, that there's nothing we can do about it. It's just his plan. So in the first century, we see a few crazy theories, but the, you know, it's all the blame game. I mean, they're passing the buck, and we do that today. Even today, we blame God for our failures. Some say since God's created everything, that he, he had to have ordained sin. Right? I mean, it ha- he, he's the one that created it all, so he had to have introduced sin. And since he did, he's to blame. Others blame God for placing them in circumstances that are just too much for them to handle. I mean, why did God put me here? He knew I couldn't handle this, which he tells us he gives us a way out. We have to choose to take that way out of temptation, but it's easy to blame God. Still, others would say that God's at fault because he's given me these passions and desires, right? If if he didn't want me to indulge in these things, you know, he wouldn't have given me these desires. We forget about, you know, free will and common sense and where that comes into play. God gives me a love for for food, but if I eat a hundred of these, well, that's my own mistake, right? I mean, they, uh, there, there's, there's a choice that has to be made. The desire is okay. It's what we do with that desire. God says, though, he is not responsible. Look again at verse 13. He says, he can't, God cannot be tempted by evil. And by the way, as a result of that, consequently, he doesn't tempt anyone. That would be inconsistent with his holy character if he tempted someone. He can't be tempted by evil and so he will not tempt anyone. God is perfect. He's divine. He's holy. Falling to temptation or giving in to our evil desires is not God's fault. We can blame him, but that will not deal with the problem. The problem is ours, it is in our fallen nature, it is our weaknesses. Sin does not originate with God, evil comes from evil. It is not divine, it's demonic. We choose evil, but evil exists because Satan exists. Evil exists because sin exists in our world. Our world is broken. It is fallen. We are broken because of sin. Without Christ, we will remain broken unless we receive salvation. Evil exists. It's true that while God doesn't tempt us, he does test us, though. He tests us to prove our character. And there are ways that testing proves our character that no other way will. The part of the Lord's Prayer, you've prayed this, I'm sure, read it at least. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Another way to say that, what this means is, God, don't allow us to come under the pull of temptation that is so great that it will overpower us and cause us to sin. He allows temptation, but he gives us a way to resist that temptation, to flee from that temptation to flee satan paul says this in first corinthians 10 13 no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to humanity we all will face temptation but god is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it yes temptation will come but there will be a way of escape if we choose to take it so don't blame god He's too holy to be tempted, and he is too loving to tempt others. Then who's responsible? Well, that leads to number two. When the grass is greener, we are driven by our own desires. So if we want to know who to blame, it's it's us. Yes, some of those are godly desires, but... James zeroes in on evil desires here. Verse 14, he says that each man is drawn away. That's literally drawing, it's a hunting term. It's, it's a term for bait that's used to draw literally fish away from hiding. But it could be for any trap set for an animal. It, it's, it's the idea that, that the normal desires of life that are given to us by God in and of themselves are not sinful, it's when we want to satisfy these desires outside of God's will. And so again, a fishing term, and I've used similar illustration before, but I brought my fishing pole with me, and the idea is that there if you were going to go fishing, and you, this is a really large hook, you probably wouldn't be fishing with this pole for something this big, but uh, I wanted you to kind of be able to see it. If I'm going to go fishing and I decide I don't have money for bait, how successful do you think I'm going to be? I mean, no fish is going to just, unless by accident or if for some reason he has a strange taste for metal, (laughs) is going to bite this hook without bait on it, right? So what do you do? Some of you fishermen, what's your favorite bait to use, depending on what you're fishing for? Night crawlers. All right. We used to fish with crickets. Go brim fishing with crickets. Yeah, a little hard to to get on the hook, but once you do, the brim eat them up, right? You use something that, while may not be enticing to you, looks like a Reese cup to the fish. So if I'm the fish, here's what my bait's going to look like right here. This is me, all right. And I'm all over that. Hook or no hook, closer we get to twelve, some of you are all over this too, right? But that—that's the idea. I mean, we, you know, using this fishing analogy, some of the night crawlers, eh? Maybe not depending on how hungry we get. But this is the idea. Listen, again, I, I don't believe Reese's Cups are sinful or else I wouldn't have given Kirk one. Um, <laughs> but the desire may be good. Food, the desire to eat is a good thing. You need food to survive. But the decision to eat maybe only Reese's Cups all the time, not a good decision, right? It's going to be bad for my health. Eventually, I will suffer as a result of that. Whatever the desire is, the hook's clean, and yes, I am going to eat this later. Um, (laughs) Whatever it is, the desire may be given to you by God, but if you choose, if I choose to, to satisfy that desire in a way that's not designed by God that's not part of God's plan that's when it becomes sin and that's what James is trying to communicate to us the reality is a temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way outside of the will of God that's when it becomes sin the bait hides the fact that yielding to temptation is going to cause pain It's going to bring sorrow and it will bring punishment from God as a loving father punishing his children. The bait is the exciting thing. It looks good, it's enticing, it may be enjoyable for a time. It is is what draws us in, but the bait keeps us from seeing the hook that's inside, it keeps us from seeing the consequences. I guarantee you that when David saw Bathsheba bathing and if he would have thought of all the consequences or if he had known all of the consequences that would come for himself, for his family, for the nation of Israel, he never would have committed that act of adultery. But all he could see was what was in front of him, what looked good and was satisfying for a moment. He could not see the consequences. And the same is true with us. The bait keeps us from seeing the consequences. The secret to this is constant control. But not just the idea that I have to grin and bear it or or, or use sheer determination and grit to get through it. It's control by the power of God, His Holy Spirit. It is submitting to Christ and His Word. The, The only way that we can make our desires our servants instead of our masters is if we are submitted to the master. And he empowers us to be able to fight off that temptation. He gives us a way out, but in our own flesh and our own strength, we're not going to choose that way out. We're going to choose what's right in front of us because it looks good and it tastes good and it feels good or whatever it is. We have to submit daily and be strengthened by the power of God. The secret is control, God's control. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, what was his response? It was the Word of God. Listen, I, I'm not just asking you to memorize this book so that you'll get a Reese's cup or whatever else I think of as the weeks go on. Now I've got to get a, a reward for everybody, right, to get you. <laughs> That's not the, the, this is why this is important. And why it's fitting that we memorize James. Because this is what James is trying to hammer into us. The Holy Spirit is hammering into us. If we're going to fight temptation, Jesus gives us the model. It is the Word of God, the spoken Word of God, implanted in our hearts. And and the Holy Spirit bringing it to, to our minds, to whatever situation that we are facing. It is the power of Christ and His Word living in and through us. That gives us the ability to resist and flee temptation. It is God. It is His words. But we have to know the Bible so that we can recognize the bait for what it is. The Holy Spirit will show us. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We trust that God's plan is better, even if what's in front of us looks good in the moment. looks like a way out of our suffering, of our testing, of our trials. We trust that God knows better. We trust that His plan is better for us in the long run. Now, if we're going to do this, we need to know how temptation develops into sin. And verse 15, James shifts here. He moves from emotions to the intellect and to the will. James changes the picture from hunting and fishing to the birth and growth of a human being to help us understand how sin develops. Temptation develops into sin. And, and what his thought here, James's thought here, is similar to the growth stages. Of life he lays out five stages of personal sin. It begins with a thought desire that's a thought that exists and, and a desire that's given to us by God in and of itself when satisfied the way God wants is a good thing. but it begins with that thought that thought. it could be a desire again that's rooted in something good, but we see a way to satisfy it in a way that's not God-honoring. It's lust. It is desire for that bait. And then we see conception. Conceived literally to become pregnant. That thought gives birth to a way, a method for taking the bait. And so that what begins with a thought, if it's not captured in that moment, if repentance doesn't take place... Or, or if submission doesn't take place, just the thought in and of itself may not be sinful, but if submission doesn't take place, if that thought is not captured in that moment, pretty soon you and I, we will conceive a way to take the bait. Rationalizing, it wouldn't be here, God wouldn't have given me this desire if he didn't want me to act on it. Whatever the case may be, the thought gives birth to a way to take the bait. And then birth itself, which is taking action. We stoop to the level. Now, I want you to think about this. There is a door here and a door there, right? What is on that door in order to open that door? A doorknob. Now, if I stand here, now, it's not automated, so, you know, Alexa doesn't control this door. But if I just stand here and say, open, or if I think about the door opening what's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. What, ha- what do I have to do? I can think about it all day long. Boy, it sure would be nice to have that door open. Somebody might want to come through that door. I'd like, for it to be, I'd like for it to be open without me having to walk all the way over there. I can think that all day long, but in order for that door to be open, I've actually got to take action. I've thought about it. I want the door open. I know how to open the door now I've got to take action in order to go over here and open this door, right? What do I have to do? Hopefully it's unlocked <laughs> after all this. You turn the handle and you open it. I have to act. I have to do something. That's what happens. When, when we get to the birth stage here, I've thought about it. I've conceived a way to take the bait, and now I've actually acted on it. And that is when sin is, is born. Thought, the desire, gives birth to, it conceives a way to take the bait. And then if I don't stop it then and repent at this point, because now I'm having sinful thoughts about taking this bait, if I don't repent at that point, it will eventually lead to action, which is the next step. And whether we realize it or not, once you've turned the knob, once you've taken the bait, you're hooked. You may not know it until it's too late, but you are hooked. And before you know it, that sin will grow into adulthood, and you're sitting there thinking, how in the world did I get here? Sin, when it reaches full maturity, boy, you're trapped then. You're wrapped up in it. You're in the midst of it, wondering how I ever got here. What began with a thought now leads to slavery, to whatever it is that you're doing and will eventually lead to death, James tells us, spiritual death. Now, that can mean one of two things. Remember, he's talking to believers here, so he's not talking about you know, death in the sense of eternal separation from God, but that could be the result, right? If, I, if I'm living in sin and I'm not saved, if I haven't received salvation and I don't accept, if I don't acknowledge my sin and ask for forgiveness of my sin and invite Jesus into my life to take over my life, to be Lord of my life, the spiritual death that I will experience once this physical life is over will be eternal separation from God in hell. That's the reality. This isn't, you know, fire and brimstone, this is just, biblical it is what God tells us there is a real place called hell and without salvation that's only available through Jesus Christ if I die without him I will spend eternity without him but for the believer my eternity is secure so I should be able to do whatever I want right I've got the safety net I can take the bait no there will still be a form of death there are different forms of death doesn't have to be eternal death death can mean separation from God in my relationship My relationship with God can be broken in the sense that I'm out of fellowship with him. I'm not bearing fruit. I'm not experiencing his presence. You know, if if there's a conflict between you and your spouse, is your relationship enjoyable? No. Better to live in the corner of an attic, right? The fellowship is broken. Pain, hurt. Hurt results well the same happens in our relationship with God if sin is not confessed and repented from and dealt with then the relationship that is a form of death and really again in the context James talking to believers so this is a warning for all of us who are followers of Christ whenever we're faced with temptation we need to get our eyes off the bait and look ahead to see the consequences of sin and the consequences of sin the wages of sin is death period God will judge sin Christian living is a matter of the will, not the feelings. I hear people say, I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like reading my Bible. Well, you know, children who are immature operate on feelings. Adults who are mature operate on the will, based on the will. Same is true spiritually. If I'm spiritually immature, I'm going to operate based on how I feel. But if I'm mature spiritually, I'm going to operate based on my will that's driven by the Holy Spirit's guidance and His Word. Because even if it humanly doesn't make sense... If it goes contradictory to what I'm feeling or wanting, I'm really wanting that Reese's Cup right now. But now's not the appropriate time, right? I don't want to make y'all suffer. So I'm going to use my determination, my will, to avoid eating that in front of you guys. It's not the right time. It's not right to fulfill that desire right now. Later it will be. In God's time, right? I don't know if it's ever his time for a Reese's Cup, but I'm going with it, okay? will we operate based on knowledge that we receive and the power we receive from God's word that's a sign of maturity that's what we have to do and what we find is the more you exercise the more we exercise our will and saying no to temptation the more we realize the truth of what Paul says in Philippians 2:13 it is God working in you both to will and to act According to his good purpose. What may not be evident in the moment will be in hindsight. Once you've gone through it, that testing, resisted that temptation, experienced the growth that results in enduring that testing or resisting that temptation. When you get on the other side of it, and some of us can testify to this, right? When you get on the other side of it, you look back and go, Oh, okay, now I see what God was doing. I know what he was trying to do. And I can see, by the way, how I wouldn't have learned that any other way except by enduring or resisting. God knows what he's doing. Even if it's not evident in the moment, if we trust him, if we remain faithful, it will become evident. And it's here that we see that when the grass looks greener, we tend to neglect the purposes of God if we go over to the other side. God has a purpose that's bigger than our present circumstance. James says God's gifts are perfect in verse 17. And he does not change like shifting shadows. It means he's stable. He's pure in character. He doesn't change. You know, one of Satan's tricks from the beginning of, of sin's entrance into the world is to try to convince you and me that God's holding out on us, that he's keeping something from us. He did it with Eve. If God really loved you, he'd let you eat that fruit. He's trying to hold out on you. He did it with Jesus. If your father loves you, then why is he letting you go hungry? I've got a way out for you right here. He's trying to convince us that God's holding out on us. Instead, we need to shift from that and look at the goodness of God. That's what James is telling us here. We need to focus on God's goodness. The goodness of God is a great... Hear this, folks. The goodness of God is... One of, if not the greatest barrier to temptation. If we really believe in the goodness of God, we believe that what he has for us is better than what Satan's offering us right now. The goodness of God is a great barrier against giving in to temptation. Since God is good, we don't need any other person to meet our needs. And the more we trust him, the more we resist, the more we endure, the more we realize that. The more we realize that he can meet our needs better than anyone, including ourselves. Certainly, better than what Satan has to offer. We realize that it's better to be hungry inside the will of God than full outside the will of God, because that fullness will eventually lead to emptiness. It's it's false. It's not true. Satisfying for a moment, leading to sorrow. Eventually, once we start to doubt God's goodness, we're going to be attracted by Satan's offers. Though that's what happens. And in the midst of trying testings, it's easy to do that. We grow weary. We begin to doubt if God really does love us, if he really does know what's best, if he wants what's best for us. Is he even here? Is he listening? Is he participating in my life at all? It seems that way. I could stand up here today and and act all holy and tell you that I've never felt that way, but there have been times in my life where I've wondered, God, are you really there? Do you really care about me? Do you really love me? Because if so, why am I going through this? But I have ended on, yes, he is there. I've come to the conclusion that he is real. I've come to the conclusion through knowledge but also experience of his presence in my life that he does love me. And then ultimately he does have a plan for me that is good and it is perfect and it's far better than anything that I could come up with or that Satan could offer me as an alternate. God is real and he is good. And he loves you. Whether it seems that way right now or not, he does. He cares for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. So that you could be free from this sin that's pulling, that's got you trapped right now if you don't know him. Or even if you do, that you have found yourself wrapped up and you don't know a way out. God will give you a way out through repentance and restoration. Because he's good. And he's gracious. Focus on the goodness of God. God gives good gifts. Every good, Everything good in this world comes from God. Anything that is broken is a result of sin. God's original creation was perfect. The whole world is affected by sin. That's why we see bad things happening and bad people doing bad things. But God, his gifts are good. Even if we don't see the goodness immediately, even Paul's thorn in the flesh turned out to be for his good, right? We don't know what that is. And the reason I believe we don't know what that is is because we can all identify with that in some way. We've all got a thorn that God has, has allowed us to have to be used ultimately for his good purposes in our life. And we see that in Paul's life. It became a blessing. The way God gives is good. Look at verse 17. It keeps coming down. That's a way to translate that. Coming down. It's a continual good gift. Coming down. He gives constantly. Even when we don't see his gifts. He's sending them. Even when we don't recognize them, he tells us that it's in his word. God does not change. There are no shifting shadows. God is constant. He is always. He is always who he is, and he's always been who he is—good and perfect and holy. He, he is God. He does not change. It's impossible for God to change. He can't be worse than he is because he's holy, and he can't be better than he is because he's perfect. He's God. He, he does not change. He's dependable. He's a rock. He's our foundation. And this means that we should never question His love or doubt His goodness. Yes, we do. I've admitted to you, I have. But we shouldn't. He's proven his, Himself time and time again in His Word and in our lives. Let's think about this. The first barrier to temptation is a negative one. Okay? Okay? God will judge us if we fall to temptation. He's going to punish you if you fall to temptation. He's a father, just like we punish our kids when they misbehave, he's going to punish you. And so that should be a barrier. We should fear God and fear his punishment. Not just a holy reverence, yes, but actual fear of consequences. That's a healthy thing. But the second barrier is a positive one. We should resist temptation because God is good and and because he loves us and he's got something better for us than what's being offered in the moment a way out you know fear is a healthy attitude but it has to be balanced by love if i just operate out of fear eventually that's going to that's going to go away but if it's balanced with love the love of god and my love for god then that's a healthy recipe for resisting temptation god's gifts are good we obey him yes because he may punish us but also because he's gracious and he's good and we love him and God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains period Satan's gifts are never gifts because you end up paying for them eventually God says first look ahead and be aware of judgment and then he says look around and see how good I have been to you and then he says look within and realize you have been born from above and possess a divine nature that's how James ends this passage. You've been given a new birth, a firstfruits. That would have been familiar to the Jewish readers because in the Old Testament we see them giving their offering of firstfruits. The best of what they had, the first and the best. And so what God is saying is that this divine new birth that we have been given because of Christ, we are now a form of firstfruits. You know, human beings created in the image of God, that image marred by sin and restored through salvation and sanctification. We are a form of first fruits. We are special. It is not arrogant, it is not prideful to say we are special to God. He loves you. He created you and then he redeemed you. He paid for you twice. He created you, then he bought you back out of sin when he didn't have to. We are special to God. It's a divine birth, not of flesh. You know, Nicodemus struggled with that in John chapter 3. You can't be born again physically, but you can spiritually. And Jesus explains that to him. It's the work of God, it's gracious. We didn't earn it or deserve it. You can't earn a gift. It's a gift. You don't pay for it unless it's Satan, and it's not really a gift. You pay for it later, but God is gracious. This new birth, this spiritual birth is given because of his own grace and will. John 13 who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. It is gracious and it is through the word of God. Just as human birth requires two parents, spiritual birth requires two parents, the word of God and the spirit of God. It is the word, the message of salvation, the Holy Spirit bringing you under conviction, and, and leading you, drawing you to himself. It is through God's word. John 3, 6, Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus said to Nicodemus. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. And then in 1 Peter 1, 23, Peter says, Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not a physical birth that is perishable, perishable Through the living and enduring word of God, the word and the spirit of God. The spirit of God uses the word of God to bring about the miracle that is the new birth in Jesus Christ. And it is the finest birth. We are called a form, a kind of first fruits, James says, of, of all of his creatures. And again, he's writing to Jewish believers They brought their first fruit. They understood what this meant. Proverbs 3, 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Of all the creatures, think about this, and not so that you'll be puffed up with arrogance, but so that you'll hopefully better understand the goodness and the love of God. Out of all of God's creatures that he has on this universe, Christians are the highest and the finest. He loves you. You are his. You are following him. You're special to God. You're valued. Even if the world's telling you you're not, you are. Even if Satan's trying to convince you that God's holding out on you, he's not. You're special to him. And his plan for you is best. For this reason alone, we shouldn't take Satan's bait. We should resist. A higher birth must translate into a higher life. A higher living. By the power and spirit of God. that This new birth helps us to overcome temptation. If we let old nature take over, we're going to fail. We received that nature from Adam and he failed. We have to have a new birth. We have to submit to the new nature. And if we do, we will succeed because the new nature comes from Christ and he is the victor. We just sang about that. He's given us victory. Now, a few years ago, 2017, we had an eclipse. Y'all remember that? We traveled to Falls Creek Falls State Park. In Spencer, Tennessee, to see the eclipse, it was a great experience. We had we went swimming, we had a picnic, and we got to see the eclipse. You remember that, Anna Shirley? Yeah, um, it was. We it was great. It was a great great experience. We had our you know our glasses, whatever we made. I don't remember what all we had. Matching T-shirts. We looked up pictures yesterday. You know, it's when you think about that, that's really an amazing thing, because when. When you see the sun, its diameter is about 400 times larger than that of the moon. So how can the moon cover the sun? Well, it's because it's about 400 times further than the moon. And so it's one of those miracles of creation. It lines up perfectly. You know, and I'll admit I'm not, you know, knowledgeable in this area as much as some of you are. I don't know all of the scientific purposes for an eclipse. But here's what I do know what I believe is just one more reminder from God about how his creation just fits together. Perfect balance. Because what are the odds that that could happen? It doesn't happen very often, but boy, when it does, and listen, when you're standing there in the middle of the day, and it gets dark, and all of a sudden the crickets come out, and they think it's nighttime, and I mean, it's just amazing. Just one more reminder of how everything just works How God designed. Yeah, creation is messed up because of sin. But boy, it still is in balance. Because if it's not, if anything gets out of balance, we'd know it real quick. If God, listen, if God just loosened his grip on creation a little bit, the whole universe would be in chaos. He's in control. The Father of lights, that that sun's a great big old light. And he created it. And the eclipse was one more reminder of how he controls that. We see it every single day. The God who created the universe. James is telling us, the Father, here's how the New Living Translation translates verse 17. Our Father who created all the lights in the heavens and the sun's a big one. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. I remember after the the we had a picture of this after the eclipse, those little crescent shadows. I don't know what remember what they're called. But we took pictures of them. I'm looking at Mandy. She's saying, I don't know either. Because she didn't know I was going to say this. But uh, all those little shadows, weird shadows that happen after an eclipse. And they change pretty quickly. Yeah, he created that sun, but he's not subject to his creation. God does not change. He does not cast shadows. He doesn't cast shifting shadows because he doesn't move. He's constant. He never changes. Paul says this in Galatians uh, 2.20. Because he does not change, because he's God who created the universe, he can give us victory over temptations. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He can give me victory over temptations that I'm going to face because he is the source of victory over sin and temptation. This is the glory of the gospel. It breaks the power of sin and death. Jesus has achieved victory and he gives us victory. If you're in the middle of temptation, take the step of admitting, first of all, that you're to blame. I'm to blame. If I make myself sick on Reese's Cups, yes, here I go again, I'm to blame for that. The desire to eat... It's not what led me to get sick. It's my decision to eat too much. I'm to blame if I indulge in that sin. Admit your sin. Admit your blame. Because once you do that and turn to God for forgiveness, the next thing you'll experience is the grace of forgiveness and the beginnings of restoration. If you are lost or trapped in some sin, if you're struggling with temptation, Confess it to God. Let go. Allow Him to take control. Allow Him to lead you to that exit ramp that He's given you as a way out of that. If you're just at the beginning stages of temptation, take that exit. Don't suffer the consequences of taking the bait. Break free of sin through God's forgiveness. God is good. The goodness of God is the key to spiritual sanity. In a messed up, crazy world, focus on the goodness of God. Believe. Stake your life on the goodness of God. He is good, and he is worthy of all of our trust and all of our devotion. We should give it to him. His plan is best. His way is better. His plan is better than Satan's bargains. Trust in the goodness of God and in the plan of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your gifts of grace and mercy. The greatest of which being the gift of your son, Jesus, who died, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died to pay the price for our sins that we could not pay so that we can have a way of escape. We can be able to break free of sin through your power and your strength and through your spirit living through us, through the power of your word implanted within us. That's only possible as a result of a relationship with you, God the Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, if there's somebody here today who is trapped in sin, God, I pray that they would confess that to you in this moment, inviting you into their lives, confessing you as Lord, believing in your heart and their heart that you, God, raised your son Jesus from the death, that, that, that Jesus, you are alive, and that you are willing to give that gracious gift of salvation. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus, that you are Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised you from the dead, we will be saved. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today who needs to make that confession, that they would, or if they're watching online, that they would now in this moment so they can experience the glory, the joy of breaking free from that bondage of sin. If there's somebody else, Lord, if if they're struggling, the beginning of temptation... And they need to take that escape. If they're in the midst of sin, they fall into temptation and they need to repent. They belong to you, Father, but they need to repent and, and have their relationship with you restored. Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us, deal with us, and may we respond in a way that it shows our love for you and our respect for you. May we respond in obedience. Just speak to our hearts, Father. Show us how you want us to apply this to our lives. Help us to make the decisions you want us to make. And give us the courage. And may we express our faith by making the decisions you're leading us to make. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?